Good morning. Wow. Okay, well, it's a couple minutes early, but we'll go ahead and start. And uh, let's begin by prayer. Jay, would you lead us, please? Thank you. Amen. Okay, so in Nahum, still in chapter 1, we're finally at letter E. We started this one last week. We saw that God brings destruction to Nineveh and celebration to his people, verses 9 to 15. Specifically, we saw last week that God speaks in verses 9 through the first part of 12. And there he was dealing with their addiction to themselves. They become drunk on themselves. They can't even make rational decisions. Uh, and, and we saw how you know, we, can, we can identify with that. And then he goes on. He's going to talk a little bit more about this. And what we're going to see today is the result of deliberate rebellion. The trial that we go through simply because it's our fault. But what is our hope in, in that? James chapter 1, you know that verse that everybody likes to use to encourage other people when they're going through hard times, and it seldom works, only because we're, we're taking it out of context. We don't really understand what he's saying there, and we try to water it down. But you know the words in James 1. It says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And then we try to explain that way so we can make ourselves feel better. But listen, really, you know, if we do a word study, we find out that joy means joy. And uh, it, it takes a long time to go through it. And some of you have heard me do that, so I'm not going to do it again. So how is that possible? How do we consider it all joy? We, um, you know, we, we all know what it is to go through a rotten day. And we can usually tell, often, we can tell when it's going to be one. I found something online. I found this years ago and forgot about it. And thought, oh, yeah. So it goes like this. How do you know it's going to be a rotten day? You wake up face down on the pavement. It's going to be a rotten day. You call suicide prevention, and they put you on hold. You see a 60 Minutes news team waiting in your office. Your birthday, your birthday cake collapses from the weight of the candles. <laughs> I was once with a dear saint. We lit her candles and it set off the fire alarm. <laughs> you turn on the news and they're showing emergency routes out of the city. Your twin sister forgets your birthday. Your horn goes off accidentally and remains stuck as you follow a group of hell's angels on the freeway. <laughs> your boss tells you not to bother taking off your coat. And the bird singing outside your window is a buzzard. <laughs> you 
You call your answering service, and they tell you it's not your business. <laughs> your income tax check bounces, which is probably not that far-fetched. Yeah. And then this has happened to probably to several of you. I know it's happened to me, if I remember right. You put both contacts in the same eye. <laughs> I see nodding. It's going to be a bad day. Oscar Wilde once said this, In this world, there are only two tragedies. One is not getting what you want. And the other is getting what you want. In other words, <laughs> trials are going to happen. The bad days are coming. In this chapter, we'll see that there are those times when those trials and those bad days come as a result of deliberate disobedience. We'll see that with Nineveh, but we will also see that that's been the outcome for Israel. So, what is our hope? What is our certainty? Let's look, we'll start in verse 11. I know we've already, well, let's start in 12. I know we've already looked at this, but we haven't looked at the second part of it. We'll read, um, well, better start in 11 so if 12 makes sense. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. So speaking to Nineveh, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength. And likewise, many, even so, they will be cut off and pass away. Then he starts to speak to Israel, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke, Nineveh's yoke, bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. God's enemy is no batch for him. Assyria was God's instrument of discipline for Israel, but they forgot that. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10. Let's read what God has to say to Nineveh and specifically what he has to say to them regarding their rebellion. Remember, again, this is a nation that had repented 130 to 150 years earlier. We find that in the book of Jonah. And we've said several times that past blessing does not guarantee present peace. And here we find that the rebellion brings about incredible turmoil. In chapter 10 of Isaiah, verse 1, it says this, Woe to those who enact evil statutes, and to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights, so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans, which is the exact opposite of what James tells us is pure and undefiled religion. So it's completely diametrically opposed to God. Verse 3, now, what will you do in the day of punishment and in the day of devastation, which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? 
And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. See, God's not finished yet with them. And his hand is still stretched out. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand or hands is my indignation. So they were his instrument for discipline. I send it against a godless nation and, co- and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But God did not tend, intend this you know, complete destruction. But there's a discipline in what he wants to use Assyria for. But verse 7 tells, yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart. So the heart is the problem, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes all kings? They don't need God. So verse 12 So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, so when when he has completed the discipline that he intends for Jerusalem using Assyria or, or, or Israel, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. Verse 33. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the the bows with a terrible crash. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down, so that the soldiers and those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. So, we see that... Assyria has become God's enemy, and they will not stand. In verse 14, we find that there is complete destruction awaiting Nineveh. The Lord has issued a command. This is back in our text, verse 14. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave. For you are contemptible. There's four things I want to point out to this ver- in this verse. The first one, the word perpetuated, it means to sow. So it means to, like to scatter seed. It means to conceive or to give birth. It's used different ways in Scripture. And he says this, I will per- you will be perpetuated no longer. In other words, this is it. This is the end. There's nothing coming from you after this. Psalm 37, verse 1 says this, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. The second thing that I want to point out is the phrase, I will cut off idol and image from uh, from the house of your gods. We know that Assyria, in, in their conquests, when they would capture a nation, they would then take their gods, 
take them out of their temples and bring them back to Nineveh, to their temple. And to them, this was a sign showing that their God was greater, their God was mightier, their God was true. They're about to find out that their God, that they have put so much into, that they depend so much upon, is nothing. In other words, they will find out that only God is God. Again, if you don't mind, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Now, we, you know, again, we read the prophets, and it's such a, a hard message that each one has to give. And we tend to, naturally, we tend to read this and we see it as being about them, but not about us. See, the problem, the reason that the enemy of God is because, remember, we looked at this last week, they've learned to worship themselves. And that's the problem. The false god is themselves. And how applicable is that for us? Even though we dress nice on Sunday mornings and we come to church and we read our Bibles, but, and so often we interpret Scripture in a way that's palatable to me. How we can identify with this is, is startling. Here in Isaiah in chapter 43, God speaking to Israel says this in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared the saved and proclaimed, and, proclaimed, uh, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am He. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act. And who can reverse it? So we see that their, their worship, their activity in worshiping their false god and worshiping themselves, basically, comes to an incredible activity, busyness in nothing. And how often can we say, if we are honest with ourselves, that in our faith, we are so busy doing nothing. The third thing I want to point out is the phrase, I will prepare your grave. In Ezekiel, God is addressing, in chapter 32, he's addressing Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. And while he's talking to them and how, you know, how they have been and what the punishment is going to be for them, he then, say, then he starts to add these other nations to it. And we find that Assyria, the nation that Nineveh is the capital of, is added to that list. And so what does he say about that? In chapter 32, and verses 22 and 23, Assyria is there and all her company. So she's part of this. Her graves are around about her. All of them are silent, fallen by the sword. And that's an incredible statement when you think about the history of this nation. 
for the hundreds of years that they have been a power. Whatever they wanted to do, they did. And everybody else in the world lived daily in fear of this. Charlie talked some last week about what they would do when they would capture these nations. It was degrading, and nobody could do anything about it. And then we read this phrase, they're dead. This is their end. In verse 23, it says, Those graves, or whose graves, are set in the remotest part of the pit, and her company is round about her grave. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. And we look at this and we go, yeah, they're so crazy. Why would they want to do that? Why would they want to live in such rebellion against God and find security in themselves and worship themselves? Why would they want to do that? Well, you know, Paul tells us in Romans 8, verse 13, he's talking to Christians here, and he says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Death is the ultimate reality for rebellion against God. Whether you are a believer or not, if you're a believer, you're living according to yourself, the old man, you're going to have to go through this. And then the fourth thing I want to point out in verse 14 is the word contemptible. You are contemptible. Now this is the nation that God has used. This is the nation that once, that once uh, uh, repented. And God forgave, and God's using it in an incredible way, but now he says this, you're contemptible. What does that mean? You are small and insignificant. You know, the pride that is ours because of the blessing of God. Insignificant, it, it, it means to be, you are obsolete. You know, in the Bible schools that I get to teach in, you know, I like to, because, you know, they're, they're, they're younger adults, right? You know, they... You know, they hear us talk about telephones that hung on the wall. That doesn't mean anything to them, you know. You probably have all seen the video the last few years where, you know, where a bunch of teenagers were given a rotary dial and asked to make a phone call, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't figure it out. <laughs> I like to tell them what computers were like when they first came out. You know, that's just disgusting to me that I can say that I remember when they came out and they don't even know that there was ever a time when there wasn't one. Do <laughs> you remember the, remember the DOS commands that we had to use just to do a simple, just a, 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 a simple thing that now we do with the click of a mouse or the tap of a finger or with your voice? Well, that's the, see, what, those, those first computers, they're obsolete. I like to tell our students that there was a time in the past that NASA envisioned the day that a computer would fit in one room. <laughs> now we wear them on our wrists. But that's the technology we use to go to the moon. You cannot find an astronaut today that would want to crawl into this, the, the Apollo space capsule because it's obsolete. It's useless. 
you have become contemptible, unworthy. Job uses the same word when he describes himself in seeing God for who he is. Behold, I am insignificant. I am obsolete. I am useless. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Can't you just envision that? In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Nothing before him. We talked about this some in the introduction to the book, how easy it is for us, including myself, to look to this nation, to look to this government to save me. And how this is common for man throughout history. It is insignificant. I am insignificant. This is the reality, okay? These things... The nation that once repented and was used by God will be perpetuated no longer, will be cut off, will be dead, and is contemptible, useless. This is what has happened to the nation that has become drunk on itself. Not at all. So now, yes, sir. It's interesting that this before contemptible is before you are contemptible. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Thank you. And so now, finally, you know when you when you get into these prophets and it gets heavy, doesn't it? And finally. That's kind of like the big bully sitting on your chest. And finally he gets up and you feel, <laughs> I'm not calling God the bully, but he's a whooper. <laughs> and then finally we come to this, God speaks to his people. And the second part of verse 12, though I have afflicted you, is that really how you see God? Is that the God you expect? or How about this? Is that the God you want? The God who afflicts. Because that's, the, that's who God is. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break the yoke of his bar upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. God's enemy will not have lasting victory over his people. In Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 31, we read this, For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief... Then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. God's affliction. Do you want a God who brings about affliction? You see, again, we look at that and we interpret it according to our human reasoning. 
but we have to receive it as it is given. We have to receive it according to how it is intended. God's affliction is always with the design of correcting for the purpose of restoring. I'll show you what I mean. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. In chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, God is, he, he will bless, but he also will curse. And he lays this out for the nation of Israel. He says in verse 15 of chapter 28, But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Verse 17, cursed shall you be in your, in your basket. Verse 18, cursed shall be the offspring of your body. Verse 19, cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses. Confusion, rebuke. Verse 21, the Lord will make the pestilence. 22, the Lord will smite you. Verse 24, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. 25, the Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. 27, the Lord will smite you. Again, 28, the Lord will smite you. Down in verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your kingdom, whom you set over you, to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there, shall, and they sh and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. Verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. Verse 58, if you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you. Verse 60, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt. 63, it shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and to multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. 64, moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples. Verse 65, among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. Can you imagine this? But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart. Verse 68, the Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships. By the way by which I spoke to you, you will never see. You will never see it again. And then it goes on to say he will make you slaves. Do you want that kind of God? What's he doing? Go to chapter 30. 
Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and your soul according to all that I commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Your outcasts are, are at the ends of the earth. From there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. Verse 9, Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hands. Verse 10, If you obey the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Do you want a God who disciplines. Because the purpose of his discipline is to restore you to that which he created you for. And what was that but his very image? It is the nature of God to protect and to save his own. This is important to remember as we go through these trials. It is the nature of God to protect and to save His own. In Isaiah 41, verses 9 to 10, it says, You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from the remotest parts and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and, and not rejected you. Do not, fear what I, for, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxious. Look Look about you, I'm sorry, do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And this is for us in the New Covenant as well. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we read, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from, from the evil one. Verse 5, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So it is God's nature to protect it is in His nature to save those who are His. But we need to know, we need to come to terms with this. God often uses difficult times to mature His people and show Himself faithful. This is God. 
In Psalm 46, verse 1, it reads, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help when things are going good. A very present help in time of trouble. Do, do we live the reality of this? Do we live the truth? Are we confident of this? Because it's true for you and for me as well in the New Covenant. Go to Romans chapter 8. God uses difficult times to mature us and to show Himself faithful through His Son Christ. Look at the reading of this. We've looked at this before, I know, and others have pointed it out, I know, but hey, that's still, it's still true. Yeah. Romans 8, verse 28, another one of those verses like, like James 2. Uh, 1 verse 2, right? So we come alongside each other and want to encourage them. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. So love God. And that's our memory verse. And so often we like to memorize verses and not take the context in consideration. Remember, whatever you're going through, as bad as it is, that God's using it for good. And so we start to interpret it, what? In a way that's, that's palatable for me, because that's the problem, right? We want to worship me. And so what does that mean to us? Well, uh, it's okay. God's using it for good. He's going he's gonna to take this away, and he's going to make it so much nicer, and he's going to make me look so much better, and it's just all going to be you know, just rosy and beautiful and just wonderful. That's, what, that's God's good, because it says God's going to do good. But then he goes on and he tells us what his good is. And so we've got to look at these verses within the context. The next verse says, For those whom he foreknew, who he also predestined, now here's his good, to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is his good. And so in whatever trial it is we're going through, and in particular today we're talking about the trial that comes about from the disobedience of our heart. God takes that and he disciplines and he's using our disobedience to bring about his good. To bring about Christ in you. The hope. The certainty of glory. And he goes on to explain that in verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who, di who died, yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, our distress, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our peril, our sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. See, he's conforming to the image of his son. His goodness is himself. And so for his sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him, through, on account of, because of Him, 
who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, consider it all joy. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then verse 12 of chapter 1 in James, you know what it says? It says this, the one who has gone through that trial, considering it all joy, Knowing God's goodness, this is what it says in chapter 1 of James, verse 12. He is a blessed man. The one who perseveres under trials. For once he has been approved, he will receive the what? The crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's James 1, verse 12, the crown of life. Now, what is the crown of life? Any ideas? What would the crown of life be? This is what this promise to those who God is working this good out. What is the crown of life? How many of you knew that was in the Bible? Okay, what do you think it is? Who said, somebody said something. I'm trying to figure out if you're allowed to answer. Oh, answer. Uh, it would be salvation, getting to be with God at the end. Okay, so salvation, being saved from myself, to be with him. Okay, any other thoughts? Jesus himself. Okay, why would you, how would you say, why would you say that? Jesus himself is the crown. Is Jesus enough? Do, do we have a problem with that? Do we forget that? Yeah. So we need that discipline. Did you hear what, what Jeff said? He doesn't believe we can really know that Jesus is enough until everything else has been taken away. Listen to what William Barclay says about this. And he says that in the, this time when this was written, uh, the, in, in, so in the ancient world, the crown of life, uh, the, the, the word crown had at least four major connotations, things that people would think of in that society. And one of them would be the crown of flowers, which was worn at times of joy, like weddings. We find that in Isaiah 28 and in the Song of Solomon. Another possibility would be the crown that was the mark of royalty. From Psalm 21 and Jeremiah 13. And then the third possibility would be the crown of laurel leaves. Now this was the crown that was given to the victor in the games. You know, Now we hang a medal around the neck, then they put the laurel leaves on the head. 
And the fourth possibility in that time would be the crown that would be, that would be the mark of honor and dignity, according to Proverbs chapters 1 and chapter 4. So which one is it? Listen to what Barclay goes on to say. He says, we do not need to choose between these meetings. They are all included. The Christian has a joy that no other man can ever have. Life for him is like being forever at a feast. He has a royalty that other men have never realized. For however humble his earthly circumstances, he is the child of God. Think about that. He has a victory which others cannot win for he meets life and all its demands in the conquering power of the presence of Jesus Christ. And he has a new dignity for he is ever conscious that God thought him worthy the life and death of Jesus Christ. So what is the crown, he asks? It is the crown of life. And that phrase means that it is the crown which consists of life. The crown of the Christian is a new kind of living which is life indeed through Jesus Christ. He has entered into life more abundant. The crown of life is the life of Christ. And it's not something we have to wait for. But if you've placed your faith in Christ today, that is a reality for you. In a maturing way. Thomas Edison, you know, we know him for all his inventions. It's been counted well over a thousand that he gave us. And we know some of them are off the bat, the microphone, the phonograph, incandescent light, the storage battery. He gave us talking movies. Don't know if that was a blessing or a curse. <laughs> in December of 1914, in the evening, in his work facility uh, that was built out of cement for the purpose of protecting it against fire, fire broke out in the film room. And it was so hot, so intense, that there were several fire departments from neighboring counties that came to try to help put it out. But it was so hot, so intense, and the water pressure was so weak, they couldn't do anything but watch it burn. His son, who was in his early 20s, his name was Charles, he found him. He was running around frantically trying to find his dad. He finally found him. And, it, and, and the story goes that the fire was so intense that it was reflecting off of Edison's face. His, Edison looked at his son. He said, where's your mother? And he says, I don't know. He said, go find her. She'll never see anything quite as intense as this. The next morning as he was looking over the ashes... This 67-year-old man who was looking at his life's work completely gone. He was quoted as to say this. There's great value in disaster. All our mistakes are burned up. Thank God 
we can start anew. And it was just a few weeks later that he displayed the first phonograph. I found this one day. Uh, the author, we don't know who it is, but it reads like this. The Christian must expect to be jostled by trials on the Christian way. All kinds of experiences will come to us. They will be the test of the sorrows and the disappointments which seek to take our faith away. There will be the test of the seductions which seek to lure us from the right way. There will be the tests of the dangers, the sacrifices, the unpopularity which the Christian way must so often involve. But they are not meant to defeat us. They are meant to be defeated. They are not meant to make us weaker. They are meant to make us stronger. Therefore, we should not bemoan them. I love that word. It means to blubber. How much blubbering do we do? But we should rejoice in them. Because here is Jesus. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. He has not abandoned you in His discipline for you. On the contrary, in Christ... He could not be more present. Any thoughts? Corrections? All right. Then we'll pray and be out of here a minute early. Miracles do happen.